Welcome to the first in this series of podcasts from the 2011 Conference of the British Society for Gene Therapy, the BSGT, and its European counterpart, the ESGCT. I'm Mira Senthilingam from The Naked Scientists. Over the next few podcasts, I'll be bringing you the highlights from each day of the conference, starting here with Day 1, which set out to engage students and adults alike with the Society's Public Engagement Day. Before the day's proceedings began, I met with some members of the audience to find out their reasons for coming along, as well as their thoughts on gene therapy. Uh, my name's Alan Brown. I've come along to the uh, Gene Therapy Day because my son is going to study genetics at university. When it comes to gene therapy, uh, I'm not afraid of science. I, I think science progress is very good. Perhaps gene therapy needs explanation to the public so that they're not afraid of it either. Uh, my name's Debbie Main and I'm the research coordinator for RET UK, which is a UK charity supporting families uh, with RET syndrome, which is a neurological condition that affects mainly girls. Um, I'm here today as there are many trials going on around the world using gene therapy to help people with Rett syndrome um, and I'm here to learn a bit more about gene therapy in general um, so that we can provide a better service to our patients. I've come along t- today uh, because basically I'm interested in medical science. I think that the more the public can learn the better we'll be informed about the medicine that's available to us. And if you don't come to conferences like this, where else are the public going to learn? I'm hoping there'll be lots of people from outside the area of medical research here to learn more today. Hi, I'm Edward Christopher Lewis. Uh, I'm considering a career in medicine, so I just thought I'd come along today because I think I'd find it really interesting. So what are your thoughts on gene therapy? So what are your thoughts on, I guess, altering our genes to do with particular diseases as a method of treatment? It's really debatable. I mean, it's a bit of a controversial topic, but I think certain areas definitely need looking into, like personalised medicine and things like that, but less as a cosmetic sense, so be careful that it doesn't cross a line that makes it wrong. So some mixed views there, as expected. Now, the day kicked off with an introduction to gene therapy by a prominent scientist in the field. So, my name is Maria Limbiris. I'm uh, an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And in today's Public Engagement Day, I spoke about the um, impact of gene therapy for uh, monogenic diseases such as cystic fibrosis and uh, um, the likelihood of a success um, in the future. What exactly is gene therapy and what is the current state of it today in terms of research? So gene therapy is very simply put the introduction of a functional copy of a gene that is otherwise mutated or absent from a particular cell or tissue. And that can be done either via virus or a non-viral approach. And its status um, in the last 20 years has evolved It is now, um, we have technologies that are far superior to what we had 20 years ago, and we are now in a stage of seeing a lot of these vectors. It's a very exciting stage. We're seeing so many diseases that are now um, in the cutting edge of clinical development. Um, Things are progressing into clinical trials. We have active clinical trials for eye um, blindness diseases, uh, for cystic fibrosis, uh, for muscular dystrophy, and haemophilia. This area as a whole then, do you think, in your opinion, is it going to be, I guess, quite a promising 
treatment procedure in the future because I guess it targets such a wide range of diseases? So yeah, for the cure of cystic fibrosis, you need to go at its very core. And the core is to basically replace that uh, malfunctioning copy of cystic fibrosis gene with a normal functioning copy of cystic fibrosis gene. The only way that you can do that is by gene therapy. And, yes, it is a difficult uh, way to go about it, um, but we know enough now in terms of the technology, we understand the immunology, there's a lot of questions that need to be um, answered, but uh, we're a lot closer than we were, for example, when the gene was firstly described almost 20 years ago. Maria Limberis from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, as well as cystic fibrosis, another of the many diseases hoped to be targeted by gene therapy is haemophilia, an inherited condition where the body's ability to control the clotting of blood is impaired. The audience were informed on the symptoms of the condition from a patient's perspective. And then my two older brothers. I'm the only one in my immediate family that has haemophilia. My cousin has haemophilia. Uh, my cousin's nephew has haemophilia. Uh, and my nephew, my, my Hi, my name's Adam Jones. My profession is I'm a lecturer in physiology for Sunderland University. And today I'm here at the BSGT stroke ESGT uh, representing patient views as I have uh, severe haemophilia B. With haemophilia, you have different types of haemophilia and you have different severities. Uh, the, the main ones that people most know about is haemophilia A and haemophilia B. Essentially, it's a, it's a disorder of, of blood clotting. One of the uh, in any haemophilia, one of the proteins in the blood um, that goes towards the clotting cascade uh, isn't manufactured by the liver. Uh, and so in order to correct that, um, there's two options, either a liver transplant, which isn't a very good option, or factor replacement therapy. This is actually what you use, so yeah, you use, use clotting factor 9? Yeah, clotting factor 9, that's specific for haemophilia B, because uh, it's the ninth one that's missing, Christmas factor. In haemophilia A, it's clotting factor 8. And having haemophilia, what exactly happens to you? What are your symptoms? I bleed, uh, basically, for longer than most other people. There's a myth that says that haemophiliacs don't stop bleeding. We do stop bleeding eventually uh, when your blood runs dry. No, (laughs) we do stop bleeding eventually. But it's a prolonged bleeding and it can can cause all all sorts of worries, all sorts of damage. And I guess, how does this affect your lifestyle? So what do you perhaps have to do differently or what do you have to think about knowing this could happen? I I can't play contact sports. Um, I have arthritis in my ankles and my elbow because of internal bleeding. Um, It it does restrict you in your profession, your chosen professions. I can't do anything physical or labouring, which is why I went down the academic route. Um, Some of the haemophiliacs aren't um, aren't as lucky as me. Um, and you know, there are obvious limitations everywhere. As growing up as a child, I wanted to be in the Royal Navy. Um, I even went to uh, get my interview at the Royal Naval Career Office, um, passed all the selection tests, got as far as the medical, and when I told the, the doctor who was performing the medical I had severe haemophilia B, he stopped it right there. Gene therapy will bring the possibility of either a one-time fix for life one injection, one tablet, whatever you want to call it, one drip, and you're done. Or it could be service options. You may have to have one every six months or every year for the rest of your life. I'll tell you what, that's a much more uh, a valuable prospect for people than to have to do these things every day of their life. Adam Jones from the University of Sunderland. As well as gene therapy, the conference will also be addressing the field of stem cell therapy, 
something the public have certainly heard a lot about in the media. But Tristan McKay from Queen Mary University of London set out to make sure they heard the truth about this rapidly developing area of science. So stem cell therapy is essentially utilising stem cells to repair damaged tissues in the body. So, for example, if a, a patient has advanced liver disease... And what aspects of it were you really trying to get across to the general public today? First and foremost, that stem cells are not just embryonic stem cells. That there are many other types of uh, stem cell. Some of them alternatives to embryonic stem cells. Some of them that can be used in therapeutic contexts that are separate. Because you touched on the fact that I guess that there are four different sources really of stem cells and they're each in their own kind of level of progress at the moment in terms of use for effective trials and treatments. Absolutely, yeah. Almost going in a developmental chronology. You have embryonic stem cells. They can potentially differentiate into any cell type in the, in the whole human body. Moving chronologically, you then have fetal stem cells, best known at the moment are umbilical cord blood stem cells, of which you can, you can extract fetal stem cells from the, the, the umbilical cord. So these have great potential. They're more or less limited to blood cells, to differentiation into blood cells. And then you'd be talking about adult stem cells. These are the stem cells that actually renew cells within the adult body. An example of adult stem cells is hematopoietic or mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow can be uh, grown outside the body and potentially subjected to gene therapy before being put back into the body. Uh, and then finally is the new, the new kid on the block, as I said, induced pluripotent stem cells. So this is where you actually genetically reprogram any kind of adult cell, like a skin cell, and you can genetically reprogram these using four genetic elements. And these cells can be reprogrammed to an embryonic state, which is very similar to embryonic stem cells. So these cells are able to self-renew and differentiate into any cell type. There's been huge investment in in this technology, and the potential is, is huge. So where are we with the iPS cells now? This is a field that has only existed for probably about five years. The four genes used to reprogram at the moment can cause cancer, and so there are problems with going forward to the clinic. However... This is changing all the time. There is development of technologies which don't use these genes and do generate iPS cells. I think within the next few years there are going to be the floodgates are going to open and that these things are going to move towards clinical trials very, very quickly. Tristan McKay from Queen Mary University of London. Now, as well as lectures, the engagement day was also about getting the public to get their hands dirty and really experience science directly. So there were many hands-on activities on offer including a DNA race to introduce students to the world of DNA fingerprinting. My name's Emma, Emma's story, and we are here to help you learn a little bit about DNA. And we're going to do... So we are doing some DNA fingerprinting today. We have teams from four schools. They're racing against the clock to um, carry out their DNA fingerprinting in order to work out from which person out of five some DNA that are taken from some stem cells comes from. So they're working with these stem cells to try and identify the the source of them exactly? Yes, they're trying to identify the the donor out of five potential donors that we have. 
and they're setting about this how? The process is going to take place over three stages. They're going to do a restriction digestion where they use a restriction enzyme to cleave the DNA into fragments. They're then going to separate those fragments using gel electrophoresis through agarose gel. Then they're going to take the gel out, stain it with a sort of blue stain and look at the pattern that the fragments make and compare them in order to work out who the stem cells came from. Because you've got a pattern for the person that sourced them too. Yes, exactly. We've got DNA samples from the, per- from the stem cells themselves and from each of the potential donors. And the prize at the end of it all? Uh, that's an iPad, so I'm sure they'll be all be eager to get their hands on that. As the stages progressed, the tension grew and so did the competition. Uh, I'm Benji Mason from Hurstby Point College. And now what are you doing now there? You're kind of shaking a, a container filled with dye. Uh, yeah, we're uh, staining the uh, gel used in the electrophoresis just so we can see the bands of DNA that we're analysing. Okay, so that you're going to pull it out afterwards and then look yeah, at the bands? About 30 seconds. How long did you have to put it in there? Uh, just two minutes. I'm Grace Swan, I'm from Rodine. So your team have handed in your sample, so you've identified who you think sourced the stem cells? Yeah, we have. And so um, who did you identify as the winner? And you're probably going to have to whisper because you don't want to let the teams next door know. Person three. (laughs) Okay, and are you quite sure about that? Um, Yeah, we we are. The sample that we were given of the... um, this in the second lane, but if you put it against, like, a white background, and you can see... (laughs) And then you can see, wait, you can see in like the fifth lane it's exactly the same. So it's just dropped and broken the gel, which I take blame for. (laughs) But it's fine, we've handed our results, so it's okay. Um, So do you know if you were the first team to hand in your answer? We thought we we were, but then we saw someone go and talk to them, so we weren't sure. So we have to rush to hand it in. So it's all tense now, waiting. Yeah, we hope to win. Well, good luck. Thank you very much. And not only were the Rodine team right, but they were also the winners. So the first people to come to me with the correct answer, which was that the DNA in our stem cells was from person three, was Rodine School. So if you want to come up near Rodine School. So a successful experiment with the element of competition driving the teams forward that much faster. The day was concluded with two evening talks making up the opening symposium, including a word from Lord Robert Winston, who wanted to emphasise the ethics and issues that needed to be addressed as the fields of both gene and stem cell therapy continue to progress. There are some intriguing and quite complex questions about gene therapy in the genome, in the germline, and they are a bit different, but there is, I think, in the long term going to be a major issue that we will have to face and that is that when we can make a transgenic really successfully and I think we're increasingly getting there uh, then we will be asking ourselves well if we can do that why don't we change the human genome and that is a very very important ethical question and one that I think is kind of puts much of the stuff that we're talking about into the shadow. How would you summarise just the future of gene therapy, stem cell therapy, that whole emerging area, really, where you think it should actually go in terms of really making the most of this field? You know, I think with with gene therapy, there are some major issues which are obvious to everybody. First of all, you know, how do you get the DNA into the cell? Do you use viral vectors with all the risks that that might involve? Um, What are the concerns about changing 
the properties of gene suppressor uh, of cancer suppressors and so on, or, or uh, rogue mutations or changes in expression? How can you be sure that gene expression is embedded and continued right through? the new cells that are created. So I think those are very different in some ways from stem cell biology. Um, After all, stem cell treatments have been pretty successful. Robert Winston from Imperial College London. Now that's it for this introductory podcast from the 2011 BSGT and ESGCT Collaborative Conference in Brighton. But join me tomorrow for highlights from day two as we delve straight into the current research taking place including some insight into clinical trials targeting a wide range of genetic disorders. Until then, though, thank you for listening. I'm Mira Senthi-Lingam from The Naked Scientists.